This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hi, I'm John Stallone. Welcome to Howl for Wildlife's Conservation Corner. Your favorite host has stepped up to support your hunting and fishing heritage by agreeing to share our message on their platform. Each month, we will be releasing a show discussing the current issues surrounding hunting and fishing. So be sure to thank them for all they do, and thank you for tuning in. Now let's jump into this episode. Hey everybody, this is Howl for Wildlife's Howlcast. I am Charles Whitwam. I'll be co-hosting this one with John Stallone, and we have on the podcast today, we have Mark Oliva. Is that how you say the last name? Oliver, that works. Yeah, Oliver. And you are with the NSSF, which is the. Go ahead. So, yeah, National Shooting Sports Foundation. We we are the Firearm Industries Trade Association. We represent your gun manufacturers, ammunition manufacturers, distributors, ranges, retails, everything that gets that gun to the counter, so you can buy it and exercise your Second Amendment right. Awesome. And we also have Travis Thompson, and you are. Um, I know you're in Florida, Travis, and I know you just did an excellent podcast with Representative Clyde out of Georgia, who is the author of today's subject, which is the Return Act. Um, and Travis, what what do you, what do you do do down there, and what's your involvement here? Yeah, I, I uh, thank you for having me on, Charles, and I'm a big fan of NSSF. I've, I've talk, spoken to Mark a little bit in the past, but worked with Trevor and those guys a lot over the years. I, so I, I run Florida's largest waterfowl. Um, hunting outfit. We, we run about 20,000 acres. Uh, we also have the largest wilderness podcast in Florida, which is Cast and Blast Florida. And then we have a nonprofit where we do a lot of advocacy across kind of all the spectrum because in Florida, we have freshwater, saltwater, land conservation, hunting. So we, we try to stay on top of conservation issues. So kind of run those the, the gamut of those three, four things. But um, that's I, I entered this conversation because uh, I, I kind of did a tap dance on Congressman Clyde a couple of weeks ago on our podcast and uh, his staff reached out and we, we kind of put two and two together. Got it. And they reached out and you just did the podcast with him on Friday. And I think you just released it today, which is Monday. 
July 18th. Um, fantastic. You did such a good job on that. By the way, I listened to it this morning. I think it was 4.30 in the morning when I woke up and I was like, I got to listen to this before the, before the podcast today. Um, yeah, you know, you did a, you did a really good job with that. So the subject is the return act and it's authored by representative Clyde out of Georgia. He is a Republican and there are, well, there were 58 co-sponsors to this bill. Three dropped off last week. And then today we just had another drop off. So now that's four. I know there's more coming as well. However, the return act is what's the acronym it's return to constitute. Does anybody know the, I can't repeal remember the acronym. excise repeal excise tax on unalienable rights now, which I jokingly like to say that sounds like something from parks and rec, something Leslie Nope would have named like the now is what makes it art. It's, it's when you, yeah. when you throw the adverb in there, the verb in there, like that's what makes it art. Yeah. But essentially what this is, is it would, get rid of the, if it's handguns, it's, I think 10% or, or 9% or whatever, but if it's, if, if it's a um, uh, rifle or ammo or, or archery equipment, it's 11%, but we get rid of that excise tax, um, which when you go to purchase those items, there is a tax put on it that you don't see, but the manufacturer see, is that the, is that correct? The manufacturers see this? Yeah, so it is an excise tax. The the Pittman Robertson excise tax was uh, was uh, passed in 1937, and it's an excise tax on the manufacturer. Every time, <clears throat> excuse me, every time that a manufacturer produces a firearm, produces a, a box of ammunition, every time that that is sold at the first point of sale, whether that be to a distributor or through direct sale to customer, the tax is assessed at that point. And again, there's a 10 or 11% tax, depending on whether it's handguns or long guns and ammunition. Uh, and that, that tax is paid directly to the U.S. Treasury and truly in one of the very few lock boxes uh, that goes directly toward conservation. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is the administrator of that money when it's, uh, when it's apportioned back to the states. It, it goes through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, to give back to the states for use in, in conservation product uh, projects whether that be for directly for wildlife conservation or habitat reconstruction, or even more recently, a lot of range construction. Got it. So this is Pittman Robertson is a tax that was implemented in 1937 um, to be put on those, those items, rifles, handguns, well, handguns came, I think in the seventies, but rifles and, and ammo and archery equipment was archery equipment back then. Did they have the tax on archery equipment in 37? Just a, I, I, I wonder. Yeah, I'd have to go back and check. Probably I, wasn't. I, I talk guns and ammo. I don't talk. It, it probably wasn't about. in 37. But anyway, that money goes towards conservation projects in each state, and, and it gets it gets divvied out um, based on certain criteria. I think that's land mass, and it's also the amount of of tag sold. And there's a there's a certain percentage that every state gets, sort of across the board. And then if they have certain projects. Um, that meet the criteria, then they they will get funding from Pittman Robertson towards those projects. Am I am I correct on that? Yeah, Charlie, you're pretty close. It's it's a fairly complicated uh, formula that they use, but it is based upon uh, the number of, of residents in the state, based upon the number of hunting licenses sold, uh, based upon the projects, the landmass. All these other things go into a factor that that spits out what their percentage is going to be uh, when it comes to the apportionments going back to the states. 
right. Okay. Is so, it, doesn't there isn't there a uh, one dollar that's put towards uh, an approved project from the state get reimbursed three dollars from Pittman Robertson? Is that what I understood? Uh, it really depends on the project, and we can go into some of the more recent range uh, uh, bills that were passed. Uh, NSSF was uh, a big backer behind these this, uh, the range bills that allowed for the construction of new ranges. That one particularly uh, used to be that the states would have to come up with a 25% down payment to build a new range or to expand or improve an existing uh, public shooting range. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was actually after about 11 years of working on, the, on it all together, uh, the range bill was finally passed. Uh, it had bipartisan support every time, but it was always caught up usually in much larger bills, the sportsman's package. Um, but this uh, this bill itself uh, reduced that down to a 10 percent down payment from the states uh, and a 90 percent match from the states. It also gave them a couple more years, gave them five years to spend that money, because we know that there's going to be environmental impact studies that have to happen. There's going to be economic impact studies, all sorts of you know land surveys that have to happen. And a lot of times the states were running out of time to use that money before they had to give it back to uh, the Treasury uh, to be able to use in some other projects. So this would allow them five years to be able to use that money and now go directly back toward improving access for people to go shoot their firearms, learn how to use them safely, use them in hunter education courses uh, and get them back out there. And again, more people who are shooting, the more people are putting money into the Pittman-Robertson trust funds that are going back to conservation. So it becomes uh, a little bit of a a circular, uh, you know, gift there to, to conservation. Right. And it's not just a, just based on what you said, it's very obvious that it's not just a wildlife conservation thing. If we're if we're developing shooting ranges, which give people who support two um, A, let's call it, just to make it simple. Yeah, I think it's. I think our most recent data shows that upwards of about seventy five percent of the money that's coming in from uh, fire manufacturers and ammunition manufacturers to the Pittman Robertson Fund is actually tied more toward recreational shooting than it is hunting. And I try to put this in very simple terms for people. When I go out and zero my rifle to go hunt for the for deer season, I might use, let's say, five rounds to verify my zero. I'll you know, shoot, shoot a group of three, and then I'll verify it with a couple more rounds. I'm good to go. I may use one, let's say maybe two rounds to, to drop that deer in place. So I've used seven rounds for that hunting season if I'm only harvesting one deer. That box of 20 is going to last me nearly three years. Uh, but when I go to a gun range and shoot uh, just for recreational shooting on a Saturday afternoon, I'll take, say, one handgun and, and take my AR-15. And I'm starting with 200 rounds right there out of the box. 100 rounds for my 9 mil, 100 rounds for my 5.56. And that's about an hour's worth of, of just keeping keeping proficient, making sure that I'm still where I need to be, uh, handling my firearms, make sure my accuracy is good, and just having fun. So when I start to put it in those kind of perspectives, people start to understand that, oh, yeah, it's, it's more the target shooter that is, is carrying the bill now for conservation. When you go out and shoot a sporting place range, you shoot 100 rounds uh, throughout that sporting place range. But when I go hunt for pheasants in the afternoon, one box of 25, if, if I'm going through halfway through that box to put three birds down and, and get my limit, uh, I'm, I'm probably not shooting as well as I need to. So. Uh, I think it's when we start to look at it, it really is the, the recreational shooter, the, the competitive shooter that's that's really footing the bill for uh, conservation of wildlife. Uh, Mark, is there is there also, though, and I've made this kind of correlation when I was speaking with the congressman. I grew up hunting. 
like that was my entree into guns. And yeah. now, you know, I lost them all yesterday in a boating accident. But before that, um, you know, handguns, ARs, rifles, all that stuff. I've accumulated those over the over the years, and it was rooted in the idea that I grew up with a dad that liked to go dove hunting and duck yeah. hunting, deer hunting. So. I, I know there's not a direct connection there, but I would not spend the money PR wise. Be personally, and I'm, I'm one, a one-off case, but I know a lot of folks like me. There, there still is that tangential yeah. connection to to hunting, in, in even though most of what I'm spending is on the target shooting side these days. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about the history of the act and how it came about. The the tax, the 10 percent, 11 percent tax existed even prior to Pittman and Robertson. Uh, dedicating this toward wildlife conservation. So th there was already that tax pre-1937. It was going into the general fund. Uh, what came about in 1937, if we look back at what was happening with wildlife in America at that time, wildlife was decimated. And it was mostly because of market hunting, because of some poaching that was happening. Yeah. Uh, people were trying to put food on the table in the middle of the depression. You know, they weren't necessarily paying attention to, to the, you know, the wildlife conservation laws that may have been in place. And, and many states didn't have good laws at that time. So, Pittman and Robertson, uh, they got together to get this bicameral bill put together in place, and they worked with the manufacturers to get the money that there was already being paid on this excise tax directly tied to wildlife conservation. At, again, at the time, there weren't many ducks flying in the air. There were, I think, you know, less than 75,000 Rocky Mountain you know, elk that were still running around. White-tailed deer had been decimated. I think if we go back and talk to even our grandfathers, they'll tell you if they saw a deer in the woods uh, at our age, th that was news in town. And now if, if we don't see a deer when we're out in the stand, we're, we're getting frustrated. Uh, wild turkeys uh, were nearly non-existent. Uh, pronghorn antelope uh, had been had been you know pretty much eradicated from much of their traditional areas. So all these funds that have kind of gone back into this have been able to bring back not only these animals that we love to hunt and that we will have to put in our freezer feed our families with, but they've also benefited those species that we don't hunt. If you look at the North American uh, bald eagle, the, the, the American bald eagle is a, is a species of raptors. We don't hunt raptors, uh, but this is an animal that has definitely benefited uh, from the conservation efforts that have been funded through Pittman-Robertson excise taxes. The wildlife, uh, not just the wildlife itself, but also the habitats in which they live. So we've been able to set aside conservation areas that they can thrive in and that they can, they can, ha they need to have to be able to find their food sources, to be able to hunt, to be able to, to, to move to for, for new nesting areas. All these things have been very beneficial. A couple of years ago, I actually did a bear den study up in Connecticut. I do these uh, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, every year. We do a couple of them every year. But we did one up in Connecticut. And in Connecticut, you can't hunt black bear. There's just no black bear hunting up there. But they're using Pittman-Robertson excise taxes that pay for the radio collars, pay for the serums, pay for all the studies, for all the, for all the interns that are coming in to do some work and, and, and work on their degrees and at the same time study these animals, monitor these animals throughout the year. Uh, and they're going out and tagging the cubs. They're weighing the cubs, weighing the sows. All that is paid for by Pittman-Robertson funds for an animal that cannot be hunted in Connecticut. Now, the wildlife management officials up in, in, in Connecticut will tell you that they want to be able to hunt black bear because they've recovered such a, to such a degree that now they need to reintroduce hunting back as a management tool uh, to make sure that they're reducing some of these, uh, these bear conflict uh, incidents. But again, we're talking about money that's been set aside for wildlife conservation that's benefiting a species of animal that's not hunted. But that's happening across the way. And it's, it's not just, again, those species that we love to hunt. Well, it's great to have all these elk back in the, in the Rocky Mountain states, 
and, and seeing being, being reintroduced back here on the East Coast. I, I live in Virginia. This is the first year that they've uh, done a draw for five tags to hunt elk in Virginia. Um, but it's also the, the land that they're using to be able to uh, propagate that herd. That's also benefiting benefiting other animals that are that are living in there, and it could be everything from you know the the deer that are also cohabitating those same areas to you know to small rodents that that need those areas as well. You're talking about that. I heard one of our colleagues say it the other day. This is the key piece of con- every year. You know, LWCF or RAWA comes out, mm-hmm. and we're like, this is the biggest conservation legislation of our lifetime. Historically, the greatest piece of conservation legislation of all time was taking the Pittman-Robertson and applying it to wildlife conservation. I mean, inarguably, you agree with that, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if we look across the North American wildlife management models, user pay system, and and it really has become the envy of wildlife management across the world. I mean, everyone looks toward how we're doing it, and we see our model being replicated in areas, especially in Africa, where they see that the wildlife is a resource and a resource that can pay for itself when people become invested in it. And that's what happened. That's what the foresight of, of Pittman and Robertson and the gun manufacturers at the time to all come together at the same table. They understood that this resource that we had was valuable and they wanted to be invested in it to make sure that it was going to be able to perpetuate itself in the future and that we can enjoy it and our, our kids and grandkids could enjoy it as well. And that was really the, the genius of what they were able to do and come together, work on that, and, and, and realize that they may not see the fruits of their labor, but the fruits of their labor would benefit generations to come. And that's not only what we're seeing here, but we're seeing other, uh, other parts of the world that are trying to replicate exactly what we're doing. Yeah. So that answers, that answers that question. So they really did in 1937 that the manufacturers volunteered that they would pay this, that they yeah, would pay this I, tax. I think it's important. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that the, the tax already existed. But they took that tax and narrowed it down so it was only going to be used for wildlife conservation. It wasn't going to go into the general fund. It wasn't going to go into paying for, uh, you know, for for building roads. It wasn't going to go in for paying for okay. uh, for for improved water lines. It was going to go strictly toward wildlife conservation. And really, truly, this is one of the few taxes that has stayed in that lockbox since yeah. it was put in there. So this is money that can only be spent. Yeah. So that tax that tax existed on on that. How long do you know how long that existed? Oh, I, I don't I don't have the numbers in front of me. Yeah, but so it they did just exist. reallocated it. They did. So okay. there's a little bit of foresight to understand that you know the user pay system really had benefit that they saw then and, and we see is now paying itself out that the people okay. who are paying into this tax are the ones who are going to benefit from it. But not only are we the ones as hunters who benefit from it. But it's the backpackers, it's the mountain bikers, it's the it's the bird watchers who are able to go out there and enjoy the same lands, the same yeah. habitats, the same public spaces that we all do to enjoy the same wildlife that we do. That's one of the questions I got was, okay, so during the middle or the end of the depression, in the depression, um, hunters, sportsmen were like, yeah, raise our prices on our guns and ammo. <laughs> like, that's a good question. I don't yeah. know. Maybe. So they were already paying that. It, it just got reallocated. Okay. Yeah. And, so that, and that is a cost, of course, the manufacturer's baking that cost into course. the product. So yeah. that, that cost is passed along to you and I, when we buy guns and buy ammunition. Yeah. But I think that's also something that if you talk to, and I think we've talked about this just slightly earlier, but I think if you talk to any outdoorsman and the outdoors woman who's out there, you know, hunting and fishing, they're, they're proud to pay into these taxes because yeah. they know that it's going to be going back to benefit them right. to be able to continue to do this and their kids to be able to do this. So, okay, let's, so the return act aims to, um, 
not get rid of Pittman Robertson, but change the whole process on how it works, change where the funding comes from. That's the important part to me is that it takes sportsmen off the table here. Yeah. And I think that's very important in, in, in the legislative actions we've been involved in with HUSIS and whatnot. It's one of our huge arguments is the money for conservation comes from hunters, from, from sportsmen. And that's, that, that really gives us a place at the, a, a giant place at the table. And I don't think everybody understands that. I don't think representative Clyde understood that he basically said to Travis, well, they don't care what you think. And, um, no, I think they do. And that's also why this first anti-hunting organization got wind of this bill. I mean, they're not going to say we support this Republican bill because they're certainly not on that. It's a different team, but they basically said we support everything that's in this bill. Um, the content of what he's trying to do. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's look into this. That's, that's the first thing I said is, is if, if I ran the humane society of the United States, I'd find a way to get behind this bill. And what's scary to me is this opens doors that I did not want opened. And this opens conversations that I really didn't want to have um, to, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's wrong or whatnot, but I just, I don't want to go there. And I especially don't want to start changing bills in the political environment that we have today. And, and just, well, let's add in this and add in pork and do this. And then what are we going to be left with? Like that, the whole thing just absolutely frightens me. Um, but, but on, let's say this got passed. I don't think you asked this question, Travis, but do we expect, let's say return act got passed. Am I going to go to the gun store and get ammo and rifles 11% less now? You, you, you want to know what's funny is when okay. I was, when I was having these conversations about what we, the, you know, I, I workshopped this with a few folks I trust in the industry and, and that was the most common question. And, I couldn't figure out a way to ask that to him without being just a jerk. But, yeah. uh, you know, also like, are you going to Congressman, you own a, you own a gun shop. Are you going to cap your prices? Are you going to say, okay, no matter what, at my gun shop, we're going to make sure we're keeping these costs as low as possible. So we're going to take that 10%, 11% hit. It, yeah. I, I did not ask the question, but it, it definitely was one that we kind of bandied about. I, I don't see it getting passed back around. I, I see that money ended up in somebody's pocket somewhere. Well, so I imagine they have it baked into their business. Um, and then, and I'm just, I'm, I am a, a business owner. I don't know how this works, but you know, you have you, I don't know how it works in, with if it's different in the gun industry or whatnot, or if you're an FFL, but of course you have write-offs and you have all these breaks and different things. And I'm sure there's gotta be a way that you're paying this 11% to make that go away or, pay, you know, they got that worked in. It's been worked in for a long time. I do not expect if this were to pass an 11% drop, um, in, in when I go to buy these items, uh, John, I think you were going to yeah. add into something I, specific to this. I actually had a conversation with, and I'm going to leave them nameless. Uh, one very big manufacturer and then a smaller ammo manufacturer. And both of them told me, uh, not specifically, but more than likely the prices would not go down. So, I, I don't. I fail to see <laughs> who wins here um, if this goes away. And um, 
I did want to say something when Mark, when you were speaking earlier, you had you said that seventy five percent of the funding is coming from recreational shooters, um, and I think that playing devil's advocate, that's that's his um, representative Clyde's uh, major um, argument. There is that. Well, it's not just sportsmen. So why should why should we all this money go to something that's seemingly very hunting related, which is conservation of, of wildlife. Um, I'd love to dive into that because that's, that to me is, is I have my opinions um, and I, and I have my, the research that I've done and I, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So, yeah. So I think it's important to understand is that when you introduce people to the recreational shooting sports, that you start to open doors to them that they may not have believed that were open to them prior. Now, if we look back before the COVID pandemic, of course, we saw that, you know, hunting participation has been declining over the years. We've seen that generations of hunters are starting to age out and, and we're all working to try and, you know, practice the good R3s, right? The, the recruit, retain and, and reinvigorate. And so, we started, we saw it happen in the start of the COVID pandemic. People became concerned, one, for their food sources, that, that they weren't going to be able to get all the food that they wanted uh, or needed. And two, we saw that people were looking to do something that they could do uh, that was socially distanced and, and still enjoy some recreational time. And of course, hunting is probably the, the original uh, socially distanced activity. I mean, the, the further you are away from other people, the better chances you are going to have of, of uh, filling your tags. So, um, we saw that there was a resurgence starting at the co- beginning of a COVID pandemic of people buying hunting and fishing licenses. People were getting outside and they were becoming introduced to them. A lot of those people were lapsed hunters, but a lot of them were new hunters as well. But we also understand through our own surveys that when we introduce people to the recreational shooting sports, or even if they're just buying a gun for self-defense, they start to become involved in other aspects of the shooting sports as well. So someone may go buy their first gun. And most, the most popular selling firearm every year is a handgun. Over half the guns that are sold every year are handguns. People are buying those particularly for self-defense or recreational target shooting. And I try to explain to people, you can hunt with some handguns. They're, they're designed for that. But by and large, you're not using a handgun to hunt. You're using it for self-defense or recreational target shooting. Certainly not using it for duck hunting. So when we start talking about the types of guns people are buying, we kind of, kind of understand what they're, what they're buying them for. But when they start to become exposed to those other people who are shooting other types of firearms, when they go to the gun range and they're shooting uh, their handgun and they see someone next to them maybe shooting an AR-15 and they want to become uh, involved with shooting that. And then they start to learn that the AR-15 isn't just a firearm that's for self-defense or recreational target shooting. I hunt with my AR-15. I hunt with my AR-10s. Uh, so they start to become exposed to that. And then they start to realize that I can use this firearm for more than just punching holes in paper or ringing steel, but I can put food on the table with that. So they start to become expanded out into what these different aspects of the shooting sports are, which includes hunting. And, and, and that's part of it is when these people become exposed to it, when they start swinging a shotgun at a clay's range or they start shooting trap, then they realize, okay, this whole thing is simulated for hunting birds. So I can swing a gun at a duck or I can swing a, hunt, a gun at a, yeah. at, a, at a rising covey. So they want to, they want to go out and participate in that activity as well. And, and I think that's where we start to see some of the benefit of people who are into this as the recreational aspect, but they start to become exposed to the hunting aspect as well. And then they, they further become invested in that, not only just by 
putting more money in through the Pittman Robertson, but they're also now buying a hunting license, which we know goes back into state level uh, conservation efforts, not only paying for the conservation officers that are out there, uh, making sure we're all staying within the, the confines of the law, but making sure that those those public lands that we want to access are accessible, that, you know, if there's areas that they're stocking with pheasant uh, because they don't naturally occur in those areas, that that's being paid for with those state hunting licenses. So people are becoming invested in this, the further and deeper they become involved in the shooting sports. Yeah. John, can I, can I jump onto that just for a second too? Because I want to add on to everything Mark just said from the complete different perspective. And, and I think you guys mentioned earlier, I am from Florida. Most state wildlife agencies are funded in large part through Pittman Robertson or the, the fishing counterpart, the Dingle Johnson Sport Fish Restoration dollars. And it's matched back, like we said a minute ago, through the amount of licenses and state size and accessibility and everything else. In Florida, hunters are responsible for our state wildlife agency budget. Hunters are responsible for about 5%. So we, we are not 80%. We are not 90%. We are not 60%. We're nowhere. So when you start talking about modifications to disconnecting our tangible touch to funding wildlife, the user, the user pays public benefits model, you end up kind of taking our seat at the table away entirely. And it's already been negated by sharing this funding through in, in state, we do it through doc stamps, we do it through gas taxes. So we've already kind of removed that user pays public benefits at a local level. And what I see happening now at a national level is if we if we want to move that direction, as hunters, and I've heard Mahoney say this before in, in a speech, I think it was at Dallas Safari Club or someplace. Once you break that model and the way that funding connectivity works, the reason to have hunters on the landscape goes down drastically. Now, some states, Georgia, most of the Southeast, except Florida and North Carolina, has a right to hunt and fish. Florida does not. So if I'm not contributing financially and I don't have a right, and I, I'm, I'm 250,000 hunters in a state of 21 and a half million people, we're 1%. So we don't have any kind of movement to where we can say, hey, you've got to keep us on this landscape. It's honestly, at, at that point, it becomes we are simply funding to keep the lights on for them to manage hunting. And if I were in charge of that, I'd start reducing that staffing because it's just a pain to manage. Could I say case in point is your the bear issue there in Florida and your Republican governors won't touch that issue? Re Republican governors and overwhelming Republican <clears throat> legislature, delegation, everything else. Uh, Florida's got over 4,000 bears. We have more bears than at any point since Hernando de Soto landed in the peninsula. And we can't even have a conversation about a bear hunt because politically it's suicide. So it's a little bit of, I've, I've always identified as a Republican. I, I'm registered as a Republican and I, I don't want to get into politics, but it, it gets really dicey for me because I'm like, wait a sec, where's my, where are my guys on this? This seems like kind of a no brainer that we should be having conversations about hunting as a management tool for this animal. And we yeah. can't even get that jump started. That's why I bring that up. That's why I say Republican, because I mean, it, it is, you know, generally you want to rely when it comes to, to hunting issues, like, oh, I can rely on Republicans for this, right? I mean, that's usually your side. Um, it, and yeah, I, I bring that up because hunters don't have the seat at the table that they do it in other states. And in Florida, you have this bear issue and it won't even be touched and just to just to sort of explain what I meant by that to the to the audience, um, you, somebody just mentioned Dingle Johnson, and I wanted to get to that. And Travis, you you brought this up with Representative Clyde, and um, because in the bill it brings up Dingle Johnson, but 
um, he said it was just conforming language. However, is there not a reduction of Dingle Johnson from, did I read this wrong from 10 to like 3%? And can you explain that? Is that. I'll try Mark. You can come in over top of me if you want to, but I'll try. I, first off, I'm not a fisheries guy and I'm not a Dingle Johnson guy. I, yeah. I do some fisheries advocacy stuff, but every fisheries policy person I talked to at a major NGO or in that world assured me that this was conforming language. So in other words, that language was already in Pittman Robertson and it already had a reduction from 10 to three in the language. They had to leave it in there to bring forward this bill. So they just were, re they, that's what conforming language means. They were just reflecting that language over again. So the 10 to three is already in Pittman Robertson. It's already written there. Okay. Okay. I, I don't, I'm not following that. So yeah. What do you mean? So the in Pittman Robertson 10th three was already in there for Dingle Johnson. Sorry. I'm trying to. It wasn't called Dingle Johnson at that time. Mark, I'm, I'm getting a little bit out of my. Yeah, out of my and, Dingle, and Dingle Johnson's a little outside of my league, but, but I believe you're right. Uh, Dingle so Johnson came many years later, but. Here's yeah, how they, I understand it to work is Dingle Johnson was. Dingle Johnson was done in the fifties because Pittman Robertson was so successful. So it was actually Senator Debbie Dingle's father or grandfather that introduced that. Her, her late husband. Oh, it was her late husband that introduced yeah. it. Okay. And um, they, they kind of mirrored this. There's an excise tax on all fishing tackle. I think it's 10% roughly trolling motors, tackle boxes, reels, rods, but in, it had something to do with how the accounts flowed. Mm -hmm. So if you look, actually, if you looked at Rawa language, Recovering America's Wildlife Language, that flows into a Pittman-Robertson account. And everyone, when that first came out, was like, oh, this is modifying Pittman-Robertson. It's not actually. It flows into, and that's Travis's words, a Pittman-Robertson account. I don't, I'm not an IRS agent or anything else. So I think what we're talking about is when those when that was first codified, when those excise taxes first exist on, existed on those electric trolling motors and tackle boxes, and everything else, it flowed into Pittman Robertson, and now it flows into a different what's called a Whisper account. The the yeah, Whisper is the overall program that manages right both Dingle Johnson and Pittman Robertson. So, question, I, I you, because you bring up Rawa, I think a lot of from what I understood that's coming from the argument of this bill is that. Because of Rawa, it's not going to matter so much to have Pittman Robertson, and and I one of the thing one of the things of language in Rawa that troubles me is the um, will be used for um, wildlife of greatest need. So that means elk, antelope, white-tailed deer, mule deer. Anything that's not really in trouble doesn't get the attention. And it's not going to be used for shooting facilities, not going to be used for Hunter Ed or R3 and all these other things that provide people to exercise their 2A right. I, I, I mean, to me, it sounds like... <laughs> I, th I think Raul, honestly, I'm, and I'm I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go on record here to say this. I'm very skeptical of Rawa. I don't like it for hunters. I love the fact that there's going to be more money for conservation. I just don't like the way it's structured. So let me. Do you want to go first, Mark? No, go ahead, Travis, please. So let me give you my problem with 
it's, I don't know if it's my problem. It is my problem, but I'm going to echo kind of what you said, but I'm going to give you a tangible example, John. And that is in Florida between license sales and PR federal dollars that we're going to get back. It's going to be around $26, $27 million based off last year's numbers. That's what, it, that's what it's looking like. Rawa will give us $38 million. Okay. With, and what's crazy to me is there's no user there's no, there's no user fee associated with it. I pay $110 a year to utilize ducks, alligators, deer, whatever the wildlife is in my state. And actually more than that, when I buy federal stamps and stuff on top of it, Rawa, no one's paying anything. And we're getting more money back from the feds for, for that. But the other thing that's kind of crazy, as I said a minute ago, statewide, we allocate funds differently because we have dock stamps and we have excise taxes on gas. So they announced at our commission meeting last week that they just got approved 12 positions, $26 million for more manatee scientists in the state of Florida. So we're funding manatees. I don't know the real number, but I'm going to guess 40, 50, $60 million a year with a team of 20, 25 people. I don't know how many people are out there. I know, I know that every manatee that's sick, we spend 10 grand rescuing it. And we've got three waterfowl biologists in the state, but I'm paying a user fee. And I'm also paying dock stamps and gas tax, just like everybody else is. So my, my issue is we are breaking this model and we're doing it. We're kind of whistling through the graveyard as we break it. And I just think we need to have our head on a swivel because I can show you some tangible examples in my own state of how this works. And I go to a podium once every three months and yell at our commission about it. And I don't yell, but have this conversation and no one seems to want to pay attention to it. But I think your concerns are exactly a thousand percent valid. Yeah, and I think we're all kind of touching on the same thing. We talked about it a little bit earlier is, is having that voice at the table and, and by paying this, the, the manufacturers who are, you know, producing firearms and ammunition for hunters to be able to go out there and, and enjoy these natural resources are being able to bring back the voice of the hunter to that table when we're having these discussions. And we have some really good allies on both sides of the aisle in, in, in Capitol Hill. I don't want to you know, denigrate anything that the D Democrats have been doing. Senator Heinrich has been an absolute advocate for conservation in, in the Senate, as, as well as, as Congressman Westerman, who is, is a biologist. And, and he has you know, very passionate about uh, you know, waterfowl recovery and making sure that we have plenty of ducks in the air. Uh, but when we have a voice at the table, I think that's what becomes a concern. I think those are some of the concerns that many have brought up about Rawa, is that you're now going to water down that voice of the hunter when we're talking about wildlife conservation, when you start to have uh, other people who are contributing to attacks, we start to have people who believe in a preservationist theory instead of a conservationist theory. And I think that's the important part of it is, is and I see this happening in, in here and where I live in Virginia is uh, our state wildlife commission, our, our fish and wildlife department has now uh, been stacked up with more people who are uh, believing in the preservationist theory and, you know, talking about these ideas that, well, maybe we shouldn't have predator hunting, we shouldn't have any predator contests and things that are being pushed by HSUS as, as cruel toward uh, wildlife. But when we start to look at it, you know, start to peel back the conservation ideas on these things, well, coyotes in, in Virginia aren't native. Uh, they're, they're pest species. And, and, and the true biologists who believe in the conservation theories here in Virginia want you to take out as many coyotes out there because they are ravaging the deer herd. Uh, as, as well as the deer are doing here in Virginia, uh, they still are having a real hard problem with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, fawn mortality, as well as is Virginia still a very much like, like parts of Florida, still very much agricultural. And, and the coyotes are a problem in, in those parts of the state where they're raising cattle. So uh, when you start to 
supplant preservationists into these agencies over conservationists, then they start to bring a different flavor to how we're going to manage that wildlife and how we're going to manage our wildlife resources, even when it comes to habitat. It starts to become the idea, well, and we're fighting this right now, even with NSSF and, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that they put forward a proposal to uh, ban lead use on national wildlife refuges. So you can't use lead ammunition, even though they're not providing any science that is having any kind of detrimental effect to any population levels. They just say, well, just on these few, we're going to have no lead, we're going to phase it out, and we're going to open up more areas for you to hunt and fish, but you can't use any lead tackle for fishing. You can't use any lead-based ammunition for hunting. Uh, but that's really taking out that the person who's using it, the person who's able to pay it. I, I'm able to buy the ammunition that I want to be able to use because uh, I know it's going to perform well. So that may be or may not be uh, you know, lead-based ammunition. But for the, the cost analysis is three to five times more. Anybody who buys waterfowl ammunition know you're paying a whole lot more for steel shot over lead shot. And you're paying that much more even if you're going to use something higher grade like bismuth. Uh, but, you know, when you start to factor that into the person who doesn't have a lot of money, doesn't have a lot of time, and maybe only has a couple weekends. And, and when you start to price them out of that market like that, where they're not going to be able to take their kid out for a duck hunting weekend in the marshes, that, that becomes a real factor because not only are you now, eliminating that one hunter out of there you're also eliminating the generations of hunters that could come behind him or her yeah we have have real concerns about taking the voice of the hunter off of the table when it comes to these conservation uh debates that are happening not at the just at the state level but also in in congress well it that opens it i don't like this because it just opens a whole can of worms i don't like it at all but to your point about taking the hunter's voice off the table 100% 100% true. But also, right now, hunters need to be more involved than they are. I mean, tenfold, thousandfold, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, we definitely need to be more involved. And especially because of as things like this come down, come down the pipe and we're, we're going to see more of this, we need to be aware of these, aware of these issues. Um, back to back to the Return Act bill. So I had heard, I know it's, I know it's not true, but I had heard that this is just a reaction to the democratic bill, um, which, um, was it Barry who, who, Byer. who Don Byer. Byer. Okay. So, um, he has a bill that would put a thousand percent tax on semi-autos, right? On AR-15 okay. specifically. Yeah. AR-15 specifically, not just semi-autos. Okay. Cause I've been asked this a million times. Hey, you're causing you're causing divisiveness because you're not bringing up this other bill, and you're only talking about this bill. And to me, I'm like, well, it's not how for wildlife's mission. I mean, this bill, the Return Act, specifically speaks about Pittman Robertson, which is directly connected to wildlife conservation, which is how for wildlife's mission. It has something to do with wildlife conservation. Now, is there a million other bills out there that have to do with the Second Amendment that me personally? Yeah, I want to get involved in. Right. But how for a while they can't get involved in that. Now, if um, a large amount of taxes that go to Pittman Robertson are coming from the sale of AR-15s and now they're $11,000 and nobody's buying them, then Pittman Robertson is affected because it's not getting as much money. Okay, I get it. I get that now after actually listening to your podcast this morning. However, that bill seems so outrageous to me. I mean, it's like just making stuff up. I don't see the possibility of passing a bill like that. Um, I see more of a possibility, personally, of passing the Return Act, 
um, for sure. De- definitely. It doesn't seem as outlandish to me, but I guess that's just the answer. Cause there, there has been a few people like you're making all this noise about this, but why aren't you making noise about that? And I like, man, I didn't even know about it. Honestly, I just saw this bill from, from, from Georgia and it directly affected Pittman Robertson. So that's why I was involved with this. Um, yeah, however, yeah, representative, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Before I worked for NSSF, I, I was in the Marine Corps. I was in the Marine Corps for 25 years, but my, one of my last tours was working as a defense fellow on Capitol Hill. And I think it's important to understand anybody who, who watches what happens on Capitol Hill, it's, it's a bit of a train wreck and you can't help but watch. I mean, you just have to watch what's happening sometimes. And um, But there are what they call messaging bills. And, and, and a lot of members will write bills that they know aren't going to go anywhere, but it speaks to their base. It's going to get out their base voters. Yeah. So if you look at where uh, Congressman Byer is from in Northern Virginia, he's right outside of D.C., literally across the river, uh, a very blue part of uh, Virginia. And he's speaking to his base of voters. That bill is not going to go anywhere. That bill is, is not designed to go anywhere. That bill was designed to, to put his foot down to say that he doesn't like this particular rifle. He wants to do everything he can to, to make sure that you don't like that rifle as well. And, and he wanted to speak to his base of voters that hates that rifle as well. That's all that bill was doing. This, however, is the Return Act is poorly conceived legislation. Whether or not the intent is to truly get rid of this tax and, and make it easier for uh, you and I to be able to afford to be able to exercise our Second Amendment rights, the way it's going about doing this is not the way that, that, that is the most achievable way of doing that. That's going to have the best benefit for you and I as hunters, you and I as gun owners, and, and for us to be able to exercise our Second Amendment. We've already talked about, well, would this money come back to you as the consumer? That's that's debatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you look at you know, where's this money going to come from, you know, the congressman said, well, we'll pull this money from oil and gas. Well, we look at the money that was apportioned back to the states. There's one point five billion dollars that was given back to the states. One point one billion of that was directly tied to the sale of firearms and ammunition. Right. And they're estimating that they'll take eight hundred to maybe nine hundred million dollars annually from oil and gas. But we're also looking at an administration that's trying to do everything they can to not put another drill tip into the into the ground to go find more oil to make oil. They want to transition yeah. everybody to uh, renewable resources. So the money that we may be getting from oil and gas is destined to go down if these policies hold. And if this return act goes through, then we're also going to cut off where that money's going to come from, from you and I supporting the Pittman Robertson excise tax. So I think that this was a poorly conceived idea. That really wasn't thought out well. And I think what you see now, as you talked about at the beginning of this, you see members of Congress coming off of this bill, which does not happen very often. It's not a, a, a very common thing to see a member of Congress say, I made a mistake. I'm taking my name off of this bill. I don't want to be associated with it. Mm-hmm. So when they're doing that, that's a pretty significant statement that they're, they're stepping back from that saying, this is, this is going to be a no-go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the people that have removed have almost... I'm not familiar with the other Georgia congressman, but I know Austin Scott was, he was one of the co-sponsors of the Pittman-Robertson modernization in 2020. Um, That got rolled into another, uh, like an appropriations bill. So it didn't have its own floor vote, but Austin Scott sponsored that. He took his name off. Um, Another member of the Georgia delegation removed himself. And then um, I heard the gentleman from Oklahoma is a big time hunter, sportsman. And Congressman Rutherford has always been a fan of sportsman down here in Florida. And he, he took himself off last week and, um, they were they were glad to take themselves off after learning some more about the bill. I think they were misled. Yeah. So this bill isn't actually reactionary to that 
um, to to that bill, the the Democrat bill, because Clyde actually campaigned on this issue, I believe. Right? Okay. So, because uh, I had heard no reason to get involved in this bill. It's dead in the water. It's not going to go anywhere. Um, I hope that that's true. But for me personally, back to kind of, you know, when it comes to hunting issues, we always hope that we can rely on Republicans, not that there aren't Democrats that we can rely on, on, on some of these issues. There's, there's definitely examples of that, but for this to have so many co-sponsors and so much support, and we're just talking about Pittman Robertson, let's just get rid of it. We can, you know, we can, we can control this, um, through, you know, the oil industry, you know, fund it through the oil industry and take, hunters off the table. I don't, I don't think they even realize that. I don't think they realize the importance, the consequences of taking sportsmen off the table of that. Um, so that's what it is for me is this is an educational opportunity to the co-sponsors and anybody like, Hey, don't touch this. If this comes around again, you know, don't, don't, don't dip your feet in that water. I think it's too, it's kind of what we talked about a little bit too. I think hunters, are emotionally attached to this as well. I, th- I think that we wear it as a badge on our on our shoulder that we're doing our part. When I buy a duck stamp, when I buy my license, when I buy you know uh, access fees to a WMA, or or I'm you know paying any of these other fees to be able to go out and, and hunt fish, I- I'm proud to know that I'm doing my part, not just to go out and hunt. I, 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 I buy a, sp- a combination sportsman's license every year. I, I fish maybe two, three days a year. I don't nearly get out and fish as much as I want to, but I'm proud to know that the money I spent on that fishing license is going to make sure that there are fishing opportunities for those young uh, boys and girls who are, who are wanting to get outside and learn what this you know, recreational pastime is and how important it is to have healthy waters, to have healthy habitats for our animals to be able to, to exist, whether it be fish or, or, or mammals or birds or, or any amphibians that are out there. I think it's, I think it's something that we as hunters wear proudly to know that we're doing our part in, in a small way that, yeah, maybe not all of us can show up for the fish and wildlife meetings. Maybe not all of us can, can, can remember sometimes just to take the, the time to write to our member of Congress or to our state representatives or to our fish and wildlife commission to, to make our voices heard. But we know that when we're spending money on, on those licenses and on those fees, we're doing our part to make sure that we're perpetuating the things that we believe in and we want to make sure that they're going to be here for the next generation. And that's holds true with this Pittman Robertson excise tax. When I'm buying a new firearm, when I'm buying another box of ammunition, I know that a portion of that 10, 11% of that, that sale is going to go toward wildlife conservation. And that we're going to be able to enjoy the benefits of that for generations to come much, much, much longer than I'm going to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last question in this, I could have asked this earlier. Is it, is the tax, is this excess to, is Pittman Robertson unconstitutional? And to be fair, (laughs) um, Travis brought this up because to me, it's sort of cherry picking in this day and age, because I'm like, man, I can think of a million things I'd want to pick on. That wouldn't be one of them. But Travis said, Hey, I'm taxed on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness every single day. So let's not act like, there's a tax on this, the second amendment. And that's the only, that's the only issue that there is, you know, let's just work to get rid of that. There's, there's taxes on 
life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness every yeah. single day. Yeah. Um, I'm getting, I'm getting taxed on the money I try to earn to put food on the table for my family. And yeah. I get taxed on the house that I try to, I try to raise my family. In, and I get, I get taxed for the education system that my children are, are now growing and out of. So, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm paying taxes on things I don't use. <laughs> I got this asked this question by by Gabrielle Hoffman, who I know that we've all oh. followed what she's written. Yeah. And I gave her a very direct answer. I do not believe that this is a tax on your Second Amendment right. I don't believe that when you walk in to buy a gun and you're paying that tax, it's already been taxed to the manufacturer that you're being taxed on your right. That tax, that cost is baked in. The tax is being assessed to the manufacturer, not you as the user. There can be arguments made that, of course, the cost is passed along to you as the user, so therefore you're paying it. But we're not talking about you walking and saying, I want to buy that gun, and then someone saying, hold on, you got to pay this $250 tax before you can actually buy that gun. That's a poll tax. That's that's you know those are unconstitutional. So I think when we're talking about the excise tax, we're not talking about an unconstitutional tax. I think that is something that has been able to hold up over the years because it is constitutional and because it is benefiting our wildlife. Because one, we're very proud as an as an industry that we're doing our part that we're paying into this. Fifteen billion dollars from our industry alone has been paid into this tax since 1937. And we've been paying over a million dollars for the past couple of years because gun sales and ammunition sales have been through the roof. We had tw- we had 21 million background checks for the sale of a firearm in 2020. We had 18.5 million background checks for the sale of a gun in 2021. We are now going on over 35 months. We're, we'll wait to see what, June's, what July's numbers come back with. But as of June, we were 35 months in a row, contiguous, of over 1 million background checks for the sale of a firearm. So the more people who are exercising their Second Amendment rights, the more money we're seeing going into this fund and the more benefit is being achieved out of this for you and I to be able to go exercise our rights, whether it be at a public shooting range, to be able to walk onto a WMA to go hunt ducks, or to be able to, you know, we want to take a stroll through the woods and be just to be able to enjoy the wildlife that we have around us. Yeah, that, that's one of the lines I wanted to draw right there. You kind of started laying the foundation for it is let's just wave our magic wand. Let's pass this bill and move into the future here. The way I see it is without this, there's going to be less public shooting ranges, less opportunity for people to exercise their right to owning a gun. So what happens to that? What happens to that gun? It just becomes a better piece at your house or, <laughs> you know, a closet queen. It's just, it's just inside your gun safe and never sees the light of day. Yeah. So who's actually, you know, because that, as public ranges go away, you're going to have to go to private range, which costs more money. Mm-hmm. When the sales of firearms and the sale of ammunition goes down in order for those companies to stay as viable and say because they got large engines right now that require a lot of fuel. Guess what? The prices of those items are going to go up. So who's really like changing uh, the the pricing structure that's going to keep people from buying things? Is it the ten percent excise tax, or is it going to be all these things that are going to happen in the future because that is gone? I don't know. For me, I don't know. I I I see it as. You're, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah. And I think anybody who's trying to buy ammo over the past couple of years understands 
there's a whole lot more in market that that goes into the cost of your ammunition than the 10 or 10 or 11 percent tax yeah. that you're paying for Pittman Robertson. Uh, you know, uh, component availability, demand, certainly, uh, you know, the ability to, to ship the, the raw materials, the ability to ship the finished product to you, all those things go in. People keep saying, well, when are the price of ammo going to go back down to what it was pre, pre-pandemic? Well, I don't think it's ever going to go back down to where it was pre-pandemic. I, I think that some of those factors of the cost of the components, you know, copper, they're not opening any new copper mines. Uh, you know, they're, you know, the cost of, of recovering and most of our ammunition is, is made from reclaimed lead from, from car batteries. So, you know, the cost of reclaiming that lead to, to make those uh, to make those parts, the cost of the plastics that uh, go into your shotgun shells, all of that. And then the cost of, of shipping that every time they have to fuel up a truck to move all that ammunition to market. Uh, all that's going into the cost of ammunition. We saw that, the, you know, I went to <clears throat> hunt prairie dogs in Montana a couple of years ago at the, at the height of the pandemic. Um, and, and I was paying about a buck around for five, five, six to go shoot that, which was to me was crazy because before pandemic, it was about 33 cents around. So I'm paying, you know, three times as much as it was. We're seeing the price of five, five, six come back down, but it's not back down to 33 cents around. We're, we're hovering around 40, 42, 45 cents around right now. So I think we're, we're looking at what the new norm is because of all the other inflation factors that we feel in the rest of our life cost of filling up your gas tank, the cost of buying a loaf of bread for your kids. Uh, I, I think that those, some of those same factors are dealing into, into ammunition. I don't think that the, the 10 or seven, 10 or 11% tax that we're paying into the excise tax that we're, that we're being paid into the, you know, as we're getting this as a pass along cost is really going to affect the, the market as much as, as some may want to tell you it's going to, uh, it, should this tax have been repealed? I, I don't believe that this bill is a serious uh, piece of legislation. I don't think that it's uh, going to go anywhere. I, I don't think it survives uh, Ways and Means. I don't think it survives the Natural Resources Committee. Uh, and I certainly don't think it survives uh, some of the champions of wildlife conservation in the Senate. Well, we certainly must fight it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's important to take a stand yeah. when, when ideas like this come up and, and some say, hey, it's a really good idea. And you need to step back and say, wait a second, we're, we're not doing this for the right reasons and to, to achieve the right results. Do you think Clyde, where do you think Clyde got support from this? That was one of the questions in the podcast. And he said from, seemed like he was saying from gun manufacturers. And then Travis said, well, the NSSF is against it. And he said, well, they're not a gun manufacturer, but you represent yeah. Yeah. So again, I, I, I start this out with, with telling you guys that my board is made up of gun manufacturers. All your all your major gun manufacturers are represented on my board of governors. They they're the ones that I'll, I ultimately respond. I I answer to my boss at the at the senior vice president of government relations and, and public affairs. Larry Keene, he answers to our CEO. We all answer to the CEO, but we all answer to the board. And that board is made up of, of the manufacturers to include manufacturers who are sizable and well-known in the state of Georgia. Right. A couple of them, in fact. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know of any gun manufacturers that have come back to me. And I've spoken with gun manufacturers specifically about this bill, specifically with gun manufacturers based in the state of Georgia, who said, I just can't support this. So I, I don't know who ha- who has gotten on and, and told him that this is a great idea. Yeah. I know that our board does not support it, and they are made up of gun manufacturers. Travis. I, I, I think you'll notice if you listened to, to our podcast with him, our interview with him, he never named a manufacturer, which tells me, huh. yeah, maybe he did have a conversation somewhere, but there was no name that he could throw out there. Um, th- and I think that was something, you know, as we're putting a bow on this conversation about the Return Act, the most disappointing thing to me is if you looked at the preemptive letter that's been kind of circulated out there, it was the AWCP letter, which is the Association of Wildlife Conservation Partners. 
um, NSSF was on that, but also all the all the conservation groups that we we kind of know and love, the NWTFs and the Deltas and the Ducks, and the, they were all signed on. But also signed on to that was AFWA, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, which is all the state wildlife agencies in the country. And the, the congressman could not tell me which one of those orgs beyond a conversation with an NSF or an NRA that he had spoken to. And I'm like, I get talking to those orgs, but also, you know, there's a whole group of people out here. Really, there were three stakeholders, right? There's the gun industry, there's the the conservation world, and then there's your state wildlife agencies. And, and who did you talk to on that? And I just, I thought that was a pretty glaring omission. And I thought it was something that was not said that overtly, but kind of stood out to me in that interview as, wow, there was a, there was a pretty big swing and a miss here with, with who you engage from a stakeholder. You know, if my congressman does something I disagree with, he, I make sure he hears it from me before it gets too far. And I just can't find where that happened in this situation. And that's kind of bizarre to me. And that's, I think that's why there's more to this story with these co-sponsors jumping on, because a lot of those co-sponsors are guys I, I've met or guys and ladies I've met over the years or, or spent time with and, and think of them as sportsmen. And I don't think they'd be OK with this if they understood the full story. And I think that's kind of coming out now, which is why we see some defectors coming on. And hopefully we'll see a few more. This may be speculation, but do you think they jumped on board thinking that this had no legs and wasn't going to go anywhere. So it was a way for them to put their name to something that there was no consequences to. It was kind of like you were saying earlier, Mark, about, you know, sometimes there's these bills that come out that just kind of make a statement and show, you know, it's like posturing and showing that, yeah, I care about this and I'm, I care about 2A and I want to get my constituents that care about 2A and not really thinking it through because they just, Hey, it's not going to go anywhere, but it was marketed as a 2A issue so they want to put their names on oh yeah 2a issue but yeah, you know so, hopefully nobody looks at the details but now they have and all right now it'll yeah be Charlie, i think you're probably more along the lines of what happened is, is the title sounds great you know the top lines sound great the boss says hey i really like this bill tells their staff yeah. hey get me on this bill figure it out tell me what i need to know and and as they start to really look at what's actually involved in this they, they start to do a little a little bit of navel gazing and thinking maybe this isn't where i need to be yeah. My biggest problem with that is they feel like they opened up Pandora's box. Yeah. Now it's putting ideas in a lot of mm. what we're already fighting ideas in their heads uh, on ways to uh, attack hunting and fishing. So I have one thing that I'd like to add in that kind of goes with the how mission and what you guys stand for and do. And that is um, I, I work with a, he's a very good friend of mine. He's my partner. He's just a great guy. His name's Matt Pierce. He's a rancher in Florida. And we do a lot of conservation work with him. We do a lot of hunting work with him. And when he was the president of Florida Cattlemen's a few years ago, he used to love to say that part of the problem with cattle in Florida and ranching in Florida was it got a bad rap because those guys wanted to shut their gate and go work their cows and not worry about the outside world. And so we create all these narratives about how ranches are bad for the environment and they're bad this. And I'm talking in Florida specifically, like it's, it's a different world down here. But over time, he, he created this slogan called Share Your Heritage and began opening his gate and inviting people in and kind of changed that narrative. And I think the same holds very much true in the sportsman's world, right? Like, like by nature, all of us would really like to go sit in our tree stand and be left alone for a week and be in the wild or go sit in a duck blind with our best three friends and just kind of be left alone. And we don't want to worry about this kind of stuff. It's not really why we got into the world that we're into. We're into it because we like the solitary, the solitary of it, the, the solitude of it and the, and the wildness of it. And, but I think that's part of what's so important about what NSSF does too, but what Howl is doing 
um, with your action alerts and everything else is you're giving a vehicle out there for folks to get involved and, and stay engaged and making it really easy because I don't want to sit and craft an email. I don't want to sit and make phone calls. But if we don't do it and if we don't draw a line in the sand, I mean, Clyde ran on this as his platform. This was his, he said it on the interview. He said when he was interviewed by Fox News as an incoming freshman yeah. congressman, what is your big idea? And he said to do away with this excise tax. And if we're not actively engaged in that and paying attention to that now, he's going to bring it back next session and the session after that and the session after that. And if no one objects to it at this point, there will be some momentum that builds at some point in a direction one way or the other. And so I just think it, it dovetails into everything you guys stand for and everything you guys do here. And I just wanted to kind of share that story and that anecdote and say, I appreciate everything you guys are doing and and, and hope we can continue to stay engaged and put our, our, our foot on this throat, so to speak. I definitely wasn't going to say that any better. That, that was, I really appreciate that Travis. Um, yeah, it's definitely important for, for sportsmen to be, to be involved and, we certainly do make it easy. There's, there's other actions. I know Delta waterfowl SCI, they all have actions on this. Um, we try to take out the roadblocks for you and you literally just have to add your name. You can reach your local Congressman. You can reach the committee. I forget what the committee it's been. It's been presented to you first or whatnot for this bill or the one that will see it. You can reach all them through our action. You can reach them through our Twitter actions. You can fax every single one of the co-sponsors. Um, and we also have push buttons with call scripts. So you can call every everybody as well. So um, it really only takes a few seconds to do that. And you are sending different messages um, when you use our platform. It's not it's not the same message over and over again. We have this, this huge backlog of, of written um, uh, testimony and, and response to this uh, response to this bill, opposing this bill, basically. So we even do that for you. So thank you very much for that, Travis. Um, but everybody needs to be involved, no matter who, what organization you're a part of or whatnot. Um, I would rather be sitting in a tree stand or, or out hunting, but that's not the nature of if we don't get involved, if we don't go to the battle, well, if we're not fighting, we're not going to win. And we're never there fighting. Somebody else is just fighting for us. And then, oh, what happened to it? What happened to hound hunting? What happened to trapping? What happened to this? And then, you know, we lose six things and then we start going, oh, man, I didn't know what to do. You know, well, that's not the case anymore. You know, you know, people know what to do. That's, that's certainly being improved through technology and through social media and whatnot. The excuses are are gone, at least for getting entry level into the battle zone. And you have to be, people hate this word, I guess, I don't know, but you got to be an activist. Um, whatever that means, that just means getting involved. That means being engaged in these issues and learning about them, educating yourself about them and making your voice heard. Hey, there's, as long as sportsmen don't get divided... <laughs> which that would be the worst thing in the world for there to be hunters and then there to be shooters and all that. There's, what is it, Mark? 60 to 80 million sportsmen, shooting sports, fishing, and, and hunters? Yeah, I believe it's well north of that, but yeah. Imagine if we all actually used our voice, if we all actually engaged. This is a multi-billion dollar business industry. The, there's no lack of money. There's no lack of people, but there's lack of engagement. And it's very important, I think, for us all to be engaged. And um, that's what we're trying to do for sure. Do you guys have any other, I don't, I think I 
I answered. I got everything I wanted answered. You guys were amazing on this. Is there anything else you guys want to add here? No, I'm good. I mean, I think again, you know, Travis, kudos to you for, for, you know, having the, the drive and, and to get the Congressman on for your podcast, to be able to answer some of these questions. And, and guys here at, at, at Hal, I appreciate you taking up this, this topic. I mean, this is something that uh, we're very glad I and mean, we're very glad to speak out where we don't think it is, but this really is uh, a, a lane where, where you guys have talked about it. And I'm not saying this term as a, as a denigrating term, but the critter groups, the Safari Club International and, and the Ducks, uh, the Delta Waterfowl and all those folks who are getting involved in this, the, the NWTF and, and everybody else. I mean, this really is your bread and butter. And so for you guys here at Hal to take this up, I, I, you know, really is important for having these other voices at the table talking about this. I understand the importance of, of the industries being able to speak a little bit of truth to power on, uh, on what this tax is and isn't uh, in, in that we're in fact, very proud to pay it, but you know, this really does affect uh, the members of these different organizations who are out there trying to just enjoy a weekend with their kids uh, in a duck blind or in the woods or in the fields trying to flush up some, some birds. So I'm glad to see y'all, you know, talking about this and, and raising the, raising the flag. Awesome. Um, Mark, what's your, what's your website? What's your organization where people can learn more? Yeah, people can learn more at nssf.org. And if they want to go on to the, the media tab, that's where you're going to find. Uh, we post up blogs there uh, pretty regularly about uh, some of the different issues, so whether it be, you know, this issue or whether it be, you know, something that we, we just sent out a press release this morning about uh, pushing back on uh, on some stuff with the Federal Trade Commission, some of the anti-gun groups. Uh, but, yeah, you can you can learn more about what the industry is doing to to work on, on behalf of your uh, ability to purchase and, and keep and bear arms. And you're on Instagram, you're on social media. Uh, NSSF is. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of an NSSF. old guy. I don't know if this gave it away, but yeah. uh, I, uh, I've got a Twitter. I've got my own Twitter page. Uh, I don't okay. do Instagram, uh, yeah. but uh, you can you can always uh, find me on Twitter at Mark Oliver Tweets. I usually put out about a grand whopping of maybe one tweet a day. Yeah, uh, to kind of about a particular topic that I've been reading about that I want others to be aware of. Awesome. And uh, Travis Thompson, thank you so much for being here. Um, what's your, where can we find you and talk about your podcast as well? Hey, you can find me anywhere on social media at Travis Thompson, T H O M P S O N. And then my podcast is Cast and Blast FL, Cast and Blast Florida. We, we, we tend to stick pretty Florida specific, but when, when the opportunity comes and we think something's beyond that or broader than that, or we've got a, a chance to jump in, you know, we, we've interviewed um, the, the Department of the Interior before over, over water stuff. And I mean, we, we, we want to be involved in conservation, at, at a, but we care deeply about our state. Um, so we always kind of take it back to Florida and, and kind of dig in in Florida. So we, we love our state. We have a nonprofit, allfla.org, um, that's kind of keeps an eye, you know, not just on ducks or deer or anything else, but also fisheries and water and land and conservation as a whole. Like we got to, we, we call it looking at the whole board. We want to see the whole board when we're playing the game. So anyway, I appreciate you guys, everything y'all do and having us on here. And Mark, thank you for NSSF. They've been a terrific partner for us, uh, not just on this, but, uh, a number of issues over the years as well. So uh, thank you for everything you guys do too. Awesome. All right. Well, I am uh, Charles Whitwam, Hall for Wildlife, John Stallone. Thank you for, for joining us, of course, because you're a part of Hall for Wildlife, but thanks for being a part of this podcast. And um, yeah, that was awesome. Thanks guys. I'll talk to you later.
Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. Actually, before I let everybody oh, wait. this podcast, I do want to say one thing because we said it a couple of times where we felt that this bill isn't going to go anywhere. I want to stress the importance on how we need to make our voice heard on us and stop this out so f- furiously that nobody will think to bring it back up again. Yeah, John, you're absolutely right. And Charles, you talked about it. You want to make sure that this bill doesn't see the light of day. Call your member of Congress. Uh, there's phone calls and emails to your member of Congress get noticed. Uh, having worked in an office, uh, having heard that phone ring off the hook on, uh, on hot button issues, they pay attention to the number of calls. They pay attention to what people are calling about, what those emails are, are coming up. And that definitely sways their, their interest and looking deeper into an issue. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, guys. I mean, you want to make sure that this doesn't come around again? It's reaching out to the member of Congress and make sure that you're holding your member of Congress accountable. They represent you. Make sure that your voice is heard. Awesome. Thank you guys again. Thanks very much. And uh, hopefully we won't be uh, having a podcast about this one in the future. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. Have a great day. Thanks.